Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today I have the distinct privilege of speaking with Dr. Michael Dienst, who is joining us from Munich, Germany, where he is a hip specialist at OCM Orthopedic Surgery. Dr. Dienst was a senior author of the article titled Preoperative Alpha Angles Can Predict Severity of Acetabular Rim Chondral Damage in Symptomatic CAM-Type Femoral Acetabular Impingement, a Prospective Observatory Study, which was published in the April 2022 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Dienst's co-authors include Hao Che Tang, Yi Jung Chen, Mohamed Sadaka, and Niels Viris. Welcome, Dr. Dienst, and thank you very much for joining us. Andrea, thank you so much uh, for your kind invitation. It's a great pleasure and honor being invited to this podcast. So um, thank you so much. Thank you. Michael, would you mind starting our conversation today by telling us a little bit about your practice? Yeah, so um, as you already uh, announced, I'm, I'm Michael Deans. I'm working as a hip specialist at uh, the OCM Orthopedic Surgery in Munich. I did my um, orthopedic res residency at the uh, University Hospital in Homburg, Saar in Germany. And actually, I did a couple fellowships in the U.S. In, uh, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I did one sports medicine fellowship with Bob Burks and one uh, joint reconstruction fellowship with Chris Peters. And at that time, I was already exposed with uh, open joint preservation surgery for uh, FAI very early. It was in 2002, so uh, 20 years ago before the first publication of FAI by the Byrne Group. So very old, early exposure with that topic. And since uh, 2009, I'm working as a hip specialist in Munich and uh, I do everything around the hip joints. I do arthroscopies. I uh, perform open preservation surgery, including uh, PAOs, and I also do uh, lots of total hip arthroplasties, so everything in the hip joint. Wonderful. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with some of the differences between our training in the U.S. versus Germany, would you say that it's common that you have fewer subspecialties within orthopedic surgery and that you, for example, as a hip specialist uh, doing the entire spectrum of hip surgery is is something that is more commonly done in Germany? Yes, I, I, I would say that's basically uh, correct. But also in, in Germany, I would say there's a trend to more subspecialties as it is uh, uh, probably um, uh, more uh, in the US. I would say that a few surgeons uh, doing hippophroscopies are coming from the sports side. But uh, most surgeons um, are coming from bigger departments, offering everything around the hip joint, as, as I do, um, arthroplasties, um, open preservation surgeries, osteotomies, and they all include also uh, hippophroscopies. So uh, probably that's what is also the, the development in Germany. That's uh, usually we are, there, there will be more, I think in the future also, we will have more hip specialists as, as I am. I think in the, US, in the US, that's a little bit different. I think many, for example, are doing hippophroscopy. There are many who do hippophroscopies are coming from the sports side. This is a little bit different here in Germany. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting perspective. I think in the U.S. we're seeing a trend toward more and more and more subspecialization. And you're absolutely correct. Many of us you know, who do hip arthroscopy do a sports fellowship. 
There are hip preservation fellowships. Uh, I was one of those who did both a sports fellowship and a hip preservation fellowship. And so I do also do arthroscopic and open surgeries, but I don't do the arthroplasty component. And I think there's a lot of valuable interplay when you're able to offer the complete spectrum of treatment for people's hips. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's very uh, it's very interesting because then when you do everything, you it's it's. I think it's easier to decide what you do when. So it's uh, you you can offer joint preservation, you offer an arthroplasty surgery, and it's. I think it's it's easier to, to decide for the patient what the best treatment is. You don't try to do everything. For example, with the scope, or and or uh, and you are also able to to do open surgery, and uh, for those patients who are not improving and where, uh, for, for example, the, the the joint is in a, a critical condition, you are it's it's easier for you then to say, okay, no, we need to do replacement. So I think if you if you do everything around the hip, I think it's uh, you have the whole spectrum and you can offer everything. Yeah, we'll see if that trend starts to occur more often here in the U.S. It is nice for the patient to have a one-stop shop where they can have all of their options at once. Here, we have to develop multiple teams of physicians when patients have problems that we aren't clearly able to treat with one type of treatment or another. So speaking of the differences between the United States and Germany, you know, in the U.S., we've seen many studies discussing the exponential increase in hip arthroscopy in particular over the past couple of decades. And these are based on database studies in the United States. Have you seen a similar increase in the types of uh, hip preservation procedures and specifically hip arthroscopies in Germany? Yes, actually, we, we have seen that. To my knowledge, there are no official numbers. But uh, f- from my experience, there was a significant increase uh, in the number of hypophroscopies, particularly during the years 2005 until, I would say, 2012. At that time, uh, I have seen lots of colleagues visiting us, uh, uh, scoping hips, um, doing hip preservation surgeries, etc. Also from, from Germany, many colleagues from Germany came over and uh, wanted to see how, how we do it. And But... There was a, a change of uh, reimbursement, especially for hippofloscopies, uh, between, I would say, the years 2012 and 2013. You may know that uh, in Germany we use the DRG system, and they have cut down at that time the reimbursement for the hospitals, actually, for, for hippofloscopies. And uh, the reimbursement uh, was uh, reduced to less than half as, uh, as it was before. And that did, did change the whole thing. It's, uh, the, the interest in hypophroscopy really uh, went down at that time. And um, I would say nowadays, uh, 80 to 90% of my visiting surgeons are coming from abroad and not from Germany anymore. So if, of course, the reimbursement is bad and uh, you, you always think, what, what do you want to do? Is, do you want to, to, to make money? Do you want to... To do fast surgeries, uh, for example, when you do, I mean, uh, to to perform a, a total hip arthroplasty is usually a, a procedure that does not take much longer than one hour. Or do you uh, do um, complex um, joint preservation surgeries such as arthroscopy? It takes, uh, in a difficult case, usually is, is a procedure that takes two hours, two hours and uh, and if reimbursement is uh, also for you as a surgeon only 
uh, 50% of what you will get for arthroplasty, then of course you decide that you do something else. So this is, uh, it's, I think it's a political um, influence impact on this uh, development. And uh, I would say for the past 10 years, the numbers have not been really going up anymore. That's very interesting. You know, I think you make a good point. And going back to the fact that you offer, you know, hip arthroscopy, hip replacement or PAO, um, I like to joke that I think of hip arthroscopy as detailing versus hip arthroplasty as demolition. So a little bit faster to do the demolition than detailing. And if you do have the option as well as the less reimbursement, then surgeons may be opting a little bit more for the arthroplasty. Yep, that's correct. So shifting gears a little bit and, and talking specifically about the study that you've published in arthroscopy, can you please tell us a little bit about where the idea behind this study came about and you know why you decided to investigate this question? I have a relatively long experience with uh, hip arthroscopies and open hip preservation surgery. Uh, I started to do that uh, already during my residencies. Uh, during my residency, in I think the first arthroscopy I did was in 1997 or 1998, so about 25 years ago. And uh, during the, those years, we sometimes we saw really bad cartilage delamination in FAI already in very young adults and adolescents. And so sometimes you look in those hips, even if the patient is, is 15 or 16 years old and you see big cartilage delaminations and you uh, question yourself, how can that be? And what, what I thought uh, some years ago was that I thought that the medium alpha angles were even more dangerous, but this was only a belief. I, I expected that if the chem deformity was bigger, the patient was not able to uh, flex and rotate the chem deformity so much into the acetabulum to create damage. So actually, I expected that analyzing, we would uh, get a result that uh, shows that um, the cartilage damage would be more permanent in medium alpha angles. And then with a higher and smaller alpha angles, a little bit less. So this was, was what we, um, uh, what I expected. And so we did this study and uh, something else turned out. So <laughs> interesting. Well, and we'll get to those results in just a second. But two things I wanted you to describe for um, the listeners based on your study was the Lowenstein view. Uh, as well as the retroversion index, because those are two things that I'm not as familiar with in my practice. Would you mind just explaining those first? Yeah, so, I mean, the preoperative um, radiographic uh, evaluation is, is very important, of course, and there have been discussions in the past, and to my knowledge, there have also been some studies, especially from, from the Byrne group, evaluating which lateral view is the best one. And so the... The done view, to my knowledge, can be done in uh, different projections and different, I think, degrees of flexion. I think there's a 90 degrees and a 45 degree, uh, degrees done view. And I think the hip is abducted to about 20 degrees. The lounge time view actually is the hip is flexed only to 70 degrees and abduction is 40 degrees. So the important aspect is when you, when you x-ray the patient 
um, in order to to diagnose the CAM deformity, it's very important that you must not abduct and rotate the hip joint too much. The problem is when you abduct to 45, 50 or 60 degrees and externally rotate the hip joint, then you will see the anterior head neck junction and usually you will miss the cam deformity. The cam deformity is the, the maximum cam deformity usually is at, I would say, one o'clock, maybe one thirty. And uh, so it's in between anterior and lateral. So you must avoid to abduct and externally rotate the hip joint too much. And uh, with a lounge time view, flexing to 70 degrees and abduction to 40 degrees, usually you will get the anterior lateral head neck junction where cam deformity is, is usually present. Your second question, the retroversion index. I mean, when you when you evaluate position of the acetabulum, we all know there are different angles, different indices that you need to evaluate, LCE angle, acetabular index, uh, extrusion index, sharp angle, etc., crossover sign, retroversion index, posterior wall sign, ischial spine sign, and of course, you can also measure anterior and posterior coverage. Um, so when I uh, assess retroversion, first, usually I look at the crossover sign and the ischial spine. So if there's a high ischial spine, so if the ischial spine projects into the uh, lesser pelvis and the crossover sign is positive, then um, there's, of course, uh, a high risk of a retroversion. And then I measure both the posterior wall sign and the retroversion index. And from my experience, the retroversion index is, is very important. Uh, this index comes from the work of Klaus Siebenrock and Moritz Tannast from Bern. And it's, uh, it is the ratio calculated from the length of the retroverted acetabular opening to the anterior uh, entire length of the lateral acetabular opening. So it gives you a pretty good value about the amount of retroversion. That, to my knowledge, there are two great publications of that from uh, Moritz Tannast. I think one is uh, in the uh, Ameri American Journal of Rhenchronology of uh, 2007, and one is has been published in uh, Clinical Orthopedics in 2015. So. From my experience, I would say if the retroversion index is smaller than 10%, so if then the crossover is usually in the superior portion, then this is more or less within normal limits. If the retroversion index is between 10 and 30 or 10 and 35%, then usually this the problem can be addressed by arthroscopy or uh, let's say surgical uh, dislocation, but if the retroversion index is um, higher than 40%, then you should consider a reorientation osteotomy such as a inverse, uh, a re reverse PAO. So very important excellent. from my experience. Yeah, thank you. That was a very clear explanation of those. So let's discuss your results next. You found that the alpha angle on the anterior posterior pelvis or Lauenstein's view nor the head neck offset ratio were associated with the severity of the labral tear but 
that both views alpha angle positively correlated with the severity of the acetabular rim chondral damage. So going back to what you had thought might be the results and then what you found. So uh, can you talk up to us a little bit more about the significance of your findings and then also your findings related to that retroversion index that you were just describing? I mean, this is actually what our operative experience is. And uh, I mean, to knowledge, and this is also what uh, is uh, was being reported from, from many other studies. And actually, but we, we did not expect that this was so, uh, that the results were so clear. We know from from the uh, pathogenesis that the chem part is leading to cartilage damage of the rim. That's the, I mean, the, the labrum can escape from the chem, but the cartilage cannot escape from the chem. So, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's explaining this finding. And uh, um, the study, I think, relatively clearly showed that. Um, so the more... Uh, chem we see uh, on a patient, the more damage we can uh, expect on the cartilage side. So, I mean, preoperatively, when you see a clear chem and a big chem, and there's not so much pincer deformity, then usually what you can expect that you will have more cartilage damage than labral tear. I mean, we both know that there's not, usually there's not only a cartilage damage, and there's not only labral tear, usually we see both. But not every labral tear and not every cartilage damage needs to be treated. But if you have a big chem, then you can expect more damage on the cartilage side, and it's very likely that you need to do something on the cartilage. And um, I mean, the, the more the problem progresses, so the more cartilage damage you have, the bigger the contralateral separation is, the larger the separation is, then usually also the adjacent labrum uh, gets unstable, even if you have only a chem deformity. You know also that um, the, the pure chem is, is, is rare, so very frequent we see both. We see, we see a combination of both of chem and pincer deformity, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to say what is predominant. Yeah, it's a very challenging concept, I think. And, it, it, you know, the larger CAM lesion, I think, oftentimes leads me to operate sooner on patients for the exact reason. I, I love your analogy of the uh, the labrum escaping and the cartilage unable to escape, uh, because ultimately with hip preservation, we're trying to preserve the cartilage. So I, I would ask you then in closing, as we're running low on time, do you see, based on these findings and your clinical experience, that perhaps there will be a future in which we screen young adults who have large CAM lesions and then prophylactically correct their CAM-type impingement? Or how else do you think we can apply this, the findings of your study to improve our outcomes of patients after hip arthroscopy? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. And this is always the question which usually comes up in an FAI session. Uh, I'm I'm still very hesitative to recommend a prophylactic surgery uh, when you see a CAM. So usually I, I I say no CAM. I mean no pain, no surgery. And uh, probably all of us we have seen patients um, that were operated hopefully elsewhere, where the patient was asymptomatic and the patient had been recommended to do surgery because of diagnosis 
diagnosis of uh, CAM deformity and then the patient was complaining of pain postoperatively. To my knowledge, there are no studies yet to, to justify that we uh, should recommend prophylactic surgery. So we need, we need to wait for further studies to evaluate that. Uh, probably it will take many more years before we have such studies, but um, I think at the moment we should be very careful. However, I think we need to look further into the development of FAI. I mean, so far, to my knowledge, we know only for the CAM deformity how this deformity is developing at least in, in, in the young active athlete patient group. So we know that uh, if you perform um, impingement sports activities during your adolescence, there's a, a very high risk that you are develop, developing a CAM deformity. On the pincer side, the knowledge so far is, is, is very small. And to my knowledge, there are no studies yet that uh, um, prove that actually a pincer deformity has a higher risk of uh, um, uh, developing um, um, secondary osteoarthritis. So uh, coming to the question of screening, yes, I think it's very important that we uh, screen young patients uh, when they're very active. Uh, I think we need to, 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 to scan the patients uh, and the club uh, in uh, the college uh, sports uh, to see if, if there's any uh, if there are any signs of uh, clinical signs of impingement and uh, with respect to the high risk of developing FAI with secondary damage, I think it's also very important that we need to find out train training modalities for those patients who are who, who, who are at the risk to develop FAI. So I think it's very important that we avoid secondary damage on the long term by uh, creating FAI patients by high impact activities during adolescence. I think that's that's very important for the future. Those are all excellent points and I agree with you completely. We have a lot more to learn about, uh, about how to prevent and um, save our young patients' hips. Thank you so much, Dr. Deans, for sharing your thoughts and expertise with us today. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, the, uh, I thank you so much for inviting me. It was a great pleasure being part of your podcast. Thank you so much. Dr. Dean's manuscript titled Preoperative Alpha Angles Can Predict Severity of Acetabular Ring Chondral Damage in Symptomatic CAM-Type Femoral Acetabular Impingement, a Prospective Observatory Study, can be found in the April 2022 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.